Hello, and welcome to Revolution 22's teaching podcast. We are a church from the downtown area in Boise, Idaho. Thank you for joining us today and hearing this week's sermon. We pray that God's word will be received and will bear fruit in your life. Amen. Feel free to have a seat. It's good to see you here this morning. And gentlemen, I think we have a challenge now, having had these ladies who had a wonderful weekend to see if we did one here, if we would all make it in Sunday morning as much as you guys have. So thank you for showing up. Thank you for all the different prayers for the ladies. I've heard it was a a good time. And so, uh, so thankful that you had that opportunity. You know, as I've been thinking about this, this section that we've been in in Romans, uh, the idea came to me like, how, how good am I? How good are you with the idea of detours in life? Uh, it seems like it happens often, whether we're talking literal or, or, or metaphorical. Are you okay with the fact that things don't quite go the way you want them to, or even pursuing off the beaten track? You know, I, I was thinking about when I was 15, one of my dad's good friends who, who was an avid hunter and outdoorsman had me drive up to the top of Bogus with my Jeep CJ5 as a brand new driver, and then just pointing me down this dirt road and said, go. And, and as someone who didn't quite know how to clutch and everything, that was petrifying, Yet it turned out to be such a fun experience. And we picked mountain blackberries. We, we ended up kind of cruising down through Placerville and Centerville and then back out to Horseshoe Bend and kind of came back on, on the highway. And I, if you ever want to do it, it's a gorgeous drive. And it, it sort of taught me that there can be some beauty in getting off the beaten track. You know, sometimes those kind of getting off the tracks are wild rides. You know, Katie and I once with a bunch of friends let, left late after work one day to decide to go all the way to Crater Lake using only back roads from Boise, Idaho. Now, we found some amazing things. Like we've, We found Christmas Valley, Oregon that I hadn't driven through much before that. It's a fantastic high mountain valley area. It's just beautiful when it's not wintertime and icy. And though as we got into the mountains around Crater Lake at 10 p.m. in the dark, it became a little white-knuckling, and I was kind of longing for the freeway at that point to get back onto the road and know where we were headed. Similarly, though, sometimes it can take longer than you think, right? I don't know if many of you ran into this in the last couple of years when Smith's Ferry on in McCall on Highway 55 was being under construction. But one day I ended up there at noon, which was the cutoff. Now you got to wait for two hours while they kind of blew things up. So me and a friend decided, well, we want to get to McCall. I bet if we take a dirt road that way and then maybe a dirt road that way, we might be able to get around Tamarack and come back in near Donnelly at some point. Two hours later, we did. Probably would have been about the same amount of time just to sit there and wait. <laughs> so we could have driven the 20 minutes to where we actually got. But it was an enjoyable experience. You know, I, I pray that you have enjoyed Paul's detour here. In one sense, that's what it feels like has been happening in Romans chapter 9 through 11. You know, Paul started out with Romans 1 through 8, and he has been proclaiming the glories of what God has done that you and I might finally be righteous and be able to be back in relationship with him, and that he's done that his very self through the God-man Jesus Christ. And Paul has been reminding us that that has always been the plan, the one plan for all of history that God might bring his people back to himself, that it would happen through faith in Jesus Christ alone, and that God even would, would well that up within us. And what we're going to see is that in Romans chapters 12 through 15, Paul continues on what would have felt like a really straight line to then share with us how this righteousness of God works out in our life in faith, but also for our own good in our sanctification and how we, we live with one another, how we can lean into that righteousness of God for our day-to-day living. 
I'm excited about John Mitchell, who's going to preach next week on Romans chapter 12. And then the week after that, Rich Metzger is going to share with us on Romans 13. It's a, it's a fun turn in the letter of Romans to go there. And that's why chapter 9 through 11 can feel like a bit of a detour from the main conversation. You know, most of us haven't pondered deeply before we got to Romans 9, how Israel worked into the salvation plan of God. And many of us have probably not tried to think about, maybe even tried to hide from the idea of election and how does that work out with our own responsibilities. Yet that's the road Paul took us down. And I would argue that it's a beautiful detour. Granted, it may feel like 10 o'clock at night on a dirt road at times, turning around the corner, wondering what's really going on down there. But it's the beautiful glories of God that Paul is taking us by that we might begin to glimpse into his very character and nature. And we might find it glorious. I would argue it is a beautiful detour. You know, this morning in Romans 11, Paul both is concluding what he's been sharing with us in 9 and 10, while also leaving us Gentiles with some final thoughts on how to relate to our Jewish brothers and sisters and about the future of the Jewish people. You know, this last section comes in two main parts. And the first part is Romans 11, 1 through 10, where Paul is going to summarize the questions that he's been asking in 9 and 10 and remind us that God's persevering plan for all people is through salvation by faith in Jesus. And he is going to declare boldly that God has not forgotten Israel. He is still working in them and through them, both through particular peoples, a remnant, and then with a future goal for the ethnic people of Israel. And then in Romans 11, 11 through 32, we're going to see that Paul's going to unpack in particular the future for Israel, how there has always been one plan for one people of God, Jews and Gentiles, but that God has wrapped that plan through the history of different people groups, first through Israel, now through the Gentiles, and he's going to bring it back through the people group of Israel. So here's where Paul starts this morning. He starts here. He says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what does God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knees to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. You know, Paul, Paul continues this imaginary, this tactic he has of an imaginary opponent. And he goes the direction we would expect this time, how he's done through most of the book of Romans, where, where he says, has Israel been failed? Has Israel, God rejected his people? And, and he says emphatically, no. In fact, we get not just one no, but kind of a two-part no answer here. You know, Paul first uses himself as an example. He says, by no means, I myself am an Israelite. You know, Paul, he's a Jew. He believes. I mean, just one example proves that God hasn't given up on Israel, let alone Paul, who Paul, as he says here, is from Abraham, the tribe of Benjamin. I mean, Paul said other places he was the Jew of Jews. I mean, if God could save the Jew of Jews, he's not giving up on Israel. You know, Paul is reminding us that, that, that God has promises to save particular peoples, even outside of, of larger groups. And that's been happening throughout history. I mean, his second note is similar to this. He says, there is a remnant. 
you know, Paul, Paul goes to Elijah and it's funny for me to think about Paul like Elijah. I think that's maybe what he was feeling at the beginning of chapter nine, sort of that Elijah-esque moment, right? King Ahab had killed the prophets of Israel, almost all of them, torn down altars. The people were with him. And then Jezebel wants to get rid of her arch nemesis, Elijah. So he flees to the wilderness and there he is moping, feeling sad for himself saying, Lord, where are all your people? It's just me. I'm the only one left right? And God answers Elijah and said, there's always been a revenant. In Elijah's case, he says 7,000 men and their representative families who have not served Baal. And I'm guessing that's kind of how Paul was feeling for himself as, as, as a minister to the Gentiles and not seeing many of his people turn and trust in Jesus. He was feeling like, am I it? Am I really it? God, God reminds Paul, no, that's not true. <laughs> you are not it. There are others there. There is a remnant. I mean, Paul, if he thought about it, he would think about the disciples who were Jewish who'd come to faith. He would be thinking about the 3,000 at Pentecost who had turned, almost all of them Jewish, to belief. Yet Paul is thinking about this larger nation uh, of Israel, this ethnic people, and he's just not seeing this mass turning that he would have expected. Now, this is a good moment to, to pause here and, and talk about Paul's language. Paul has been using the word Israel in multiple different ways throughout this letter, which is part of what makes it confusing. I mean, let's just start here back in the beginning of Romans 9. He says, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. That is a nonsensical sentence if those words mean the same thing. Paul has had different meanings for Israel throughout. At times when he says Israel, he's talking about this ethnic, national, corporate people of Israel. At other times when he's talking about Israel, he's talking about those who are truly in the faith, those who have come by faith, elected by God, that are the true Israel. And then at other times, he refers to Israel as those who are just the hardened ones, those ones who have fallen away. Every time he talks about these groups, he simply uses the word Israel. You know, in chapter nine, one of Paul's first explanations of how God is still good in this process is that not all who are ethnic Israel were ever meant to be true Israel, the ones that were saved. He's shown us many examples from that. That's what Romans 9, 6 is talking about. But here in this section, we see this, another concern that's still there for Paul. You know, he says this, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. It's clear he's thinking about people, ethnic Israel, this group as a whole, a corporate entity. You know, Paul is not just thinking about individuals or particular remnants or groups, but he's also wondering on this big picture about Israel. What is God's purposes for them? You know, we can see that, that Paul has studied much and thought about Israel, and he's come to the conclusion that, that through the gospel and throughout scripture, there really was never a promise that all of them would be saved in totality. It's what Paul had probably been taught when he was younger, that just because they were a people, they were going to be saved. And yet he would say, that's not the truth. That's not the story. That's never been the case. Yet we still see Paul here wondering about the different ways that God has used Israel in the past. And does he have a future to use Israel again? You know, he's going to continue on with those thoughts in the second part, as we talked about. But one of the things we can't miss here in this section is how Paul ends it. It's Paul's reiteration of how any in Israel would be saved. He says, so too, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. There is not a second plan for how Israel would be saved. 
if they are going to be brought in, a remnant in Paul's day, a remnant in our day, a remnant in the future, it will be by the same plan. Paul doesn't want us to get lost here and wonder and think if there's another way this will happen. They can only come to saving faith through Jesus Christ alone. The very thing that was a stumbling block for them originally. You know, Paul knows and is beginning to hint that he has this concern for Israel as an ethnic group. And how will God bring them in? He doesn't want us to start running down the wrong road of thinking that they will be brought in any other way except through grace. That works may never be shown as the way to true faith. It's the the same thing that Paul has been saying in Romans again and again and again, that it's by faith, not by works. It's by faith, not by works. And he's going to further argue here about how Israel has not failed to receive salvation. He says this in Romans eleven seven. He says, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Again, Paul's imaginary discussion where he emphatically says, no, no, Israel did not fail in all ways. And again, he brings up these three separate categories here about Israel. I mean, he starts out with the corporate, the whole ethnic group of Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. And then he goes on and says, but the elect obtained it and the rest were hardened. Those three categories, ways of talking about Israel. But the real question we should be asking when we read this is what does it mean? What were they seeking? What was it? If we go back to to chapter 9, verse 31, we see it was righteousness. Corporate Israel was seeking righteousness through works, through the law, thinking that they could prove themselves. And he says they didn't find it, but the elect, those who put their faith in God through a future Messiah, found salvation. And they found it in Jesus Christ. You know, Paul is clearly summarizing here what he's been saying through chapters 9 and 10. It's a very helpful way of putting it all together in one spot. Some of Israel are, are, have believed and are saved. And Paul is explaining well that within corporate Israel, there are these two different parts of Israel. Israel that has been elect or put their faith in God. And Israel that has both hardened their own hearts and had their hearts hardened and no longer follows God. You know, it's exactly the way that we would think about Gentiles. Uh, We look around and think the same thing about our own culture just by what we see. And Paul is saying this is what's going on there as well. I want to pause here and just appreciate this detour. Appreciate the main path that Paul has been taking us down that we've been talking about through chapter 9 and chapter 10, now in chapter 11. I think there are two key takeaways that Paul wants us to take from this main path that he's been taking us on. Number one, God is good and trustworthy. God brought faith to Israel as he always promised. He was always working in their hearts, starting back with Abraham and Isaac, that even though they could never do the works of the law, that they might see a God that was holy and righteous and by faith turn and trust in him. Trust in his provision of a future Messiah then and now a Messiah that we know in Jesus Christ. And he has been so good that not only did he bring it to the Jews, but he brought it to the Gentiles. That, that his grace has overflowed abundantly to me and you that we might come to know Jesus as our Lord and Savior without all that history ourselves in our culture of the patriarchs. But number two, God is staying true to his nature of being both sovereign and expecting us to put our faith in him. It may feel like at times when I say this that it's like talking about this stairwell. Is it going up? Is it going down? How does it connect? 
It's called a Penrose staircase in case you wanted to know that. It's what it feels like at times. Like we're going in circles trying to figure out, well, how does, how does God's sovereignty work with, with my responsibility? And yet God says they are both gloriously true and things that we would not want to have any other way. We would not want to have a God who is not sovereign. That means we could not trust in him for our salvation. We could not ask him for the things that we need and believe that he could actually influence this world in the ways that we would need him to influence. Having a God who is not sovereign is ultimately deadly and sad. We don't want that. We want to hold that as a glorious truth. And yet, without our own responsibility, without our own agency, we would be robots, only doing what we're programmed to do never fully getting to live out our image-bearer qualities of God in choosing and putting our faith in Him and expressing our love and gratitude. We want to hold both of these as beautiful truths and cherish them as difficult as they are for us to comprehend. And as we leave this section this morning that's, that's primarily summarizing election and faith and our responsibility I pray that you continue to press in on that in your own life. Press into what God says throughout Scripture, that, that it might begin to be more clear and that you might begin to love the Lord God more because of it. Well, if in that first part, Paul, Paul does a good job of helping us summarize Romans 9 and 10, we get to this next part, and sometimes it can feel like he almost begins to muddy the waters again. You know, Paul, Paul is concerned about what he's going to talk about in verse 25 and call a mystery a mystery that he doesn't want me and you Gentiles to miss about God's plan of salvation throughout time. And we're going to see that Paul believes that God not only has a purpose for Israel because he's saving individuals and a remnant, but he also has something he wants to do with ethnic Israel in the future. What we're going to see in this next section is the same three-phase pattern repeated again and again in different ways. In 11 and 12, this is what he says. He says that there was the trespass of Israel, which brought about salvation for the Gentiles, which will bring their Israel's fullness. Verse 15, he says that we see that their rejection has brought reconciliation for the world, which will bring their Israel's acceptance. He says that we have natural branches that were broken off of an olive tree with wild shoots grafted in that can lead to the natural branches being grafted back in. See, the hardening of Israel brings about the fullness of the Gentiles that all of Israel might be saved. And we see disobedience of Israel brings about mercy for the Gentiles, which will bring about mercy for Israel. Do you see the pattern here? He's saying it in so many different ways so that we don't lose what the point is here. It's this idea that, that, that we've seen played out in Romans that God had a people whom he gave his law and prophets many different promises to, and that they rejected the very Messiah that God had promised to them. And because of that, God's mercy and grace spilled out to Gentiles in a way that was available to them previously, but in a very different way now. And we see Gentiles come to faith in mass. We see that even going on through our day. But what Paul is saying is that all has a purpose to bring in Israel again. And we're going to talk about what that looks like in this section. Let's look at where Paul starts here in 11.11. He says, So I ask, did they, Israel, ethnic corporate Israel, stumble in order that they may f- might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? You know, he rhetorically asks here, if Israel, the corporate group, has stumbled, stumbled over Jesus, the Messiah, that they actually might fall away 
the picture there is that they would fall from God's vision, from his desire, from his usefulness of them. And Paul again emphatically says no. He says this was part of a plan, a salvation plan that God has been working throughout history and time that started and primarily included Israel, though Gentiles were invited in, that, that he's woven now to be primarily, primarily Gentile, though Israel and Jewish people are invited in, and that will culminate again with an ethnic people of Israel rejoicing and coming to faith in a way that Paul hasn't seen yet. You know, there's something that you've probably intuitively been doing throughout this section of Romans. In Romans 9 through 11, whenever Paul talks about the Gentiles, you have not been thinking that bringing grace to Gentiles like this, you know, rather through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, that Paul means every single Gentile. You don't think that because you know our own history. You see the people around you. You see how many Gentiles don't trust in the Lord and haven't put their faith in him. Yet sometimes we, we get a little tripped up here with Israel. <laughs> Whenever he talks about bringing faith to Israel, even all of Israel, we want to think literally every single person. You know, Paul has never said the phrase all Israelites, though we just saw him talking about himself as an Israelite. He says all Israel or Israel. It's the same about how we think about Gentiles. He is wondering someday, not if every single individual Jewish person will be saved, but rather will they be represented as an ethnic group in a major way that he isn't seeing happen in his lifetime. Here, Paul is telling us that the mystery is that God has a process. He started with Israel, his people, gave them the law and the prophets. When the Messiah came, they rejected him. And in doing so, that opened a way for Gentiles to come to faith. But the next step is that to make Israel jealous, to, to, to rouse inside of them an affection for God, a desire that they don't have at the moment. And yet if he tells us their rejection of Christ is a blessing, he says, imagine the joy and the riches that would come if they came back. And we say that, see that the goal is their full inclusion. The, the idea here again of full is not every single one. The idea behind this is the full quantity, the, the full measure, meaning what would fill up God's desires, that there are people from ethnic Israel that God wants to bring in, and he's using this process to build within them a jealousy and a desire for him. You know, in keeping with this idea of a pattern of Israel, then Gentiles in Israel, Paul continues to specifically single out us Gentiles to hear what he is saying. And here's where he goes. He says, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Paul looks to the Gentiles, and I think he's realizing there's a problem occurring, even in his day. And he sees in it something that he's very familiar with. Those who look like they're the ones who God is primarily working through, which the Gentiles even looked in Paul's day, since Jesus' resurrection, can start to feel conceited to look down on the other. And he sees that when he looks at his own people, when he looks at the history of Israel, how so often they look down on the Gentiles, people that they were meant to be a light and a beacon to, that people might see the glories and the joys of God in their culture and come to them. And they tended to build ways to keep them out of that more often than invite them in. You know, they despise the Gentiles in many different ways. And Paul is seeing that, that attitude in the Gentiles, and he's wanting to remind them that there's a bigger purpose here. And he wants to help spare Gentiles. He wants to help spare me and you from making many of the mistakes Israel made. And in his mind, the best way to do that is to begin to unpack this mystery. 
Now, again, mystery doesn't mean something that we have to figure out. Rather, when Paul talks about it, he says it often of the gospel, the mystery of the gospel. It's this thing that God has now revealed in a new way that we can understand. He wants us to see how God's moving grace is working towards Israel coming back into the people of God in a much larger way. Paul moves away kind of from talking directly sort of into analogy in this next section. He's going to milk this metaphor for everything that it's worth. So here's what he says. He says, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who supports the roots, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more then will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? And Paul starts out with this analogy of a lump of dough. It comes from numbers and this this picture of of an offering that Israel was to give to God from the bread that they prepared in their wanderings. And he's saying if that lump was prepared correctly, then clearly the rest of the bread was created correctly in the ways that would make it a good offering. And he's saying in the same way, the root, if it is started in holiness, will continue to bring holiness. He's he's harking us back to this conversation that he had uh, about the patriarchs, about Abraham and how things started, that it was never about work working out our faith ourselves, doing works that we might prove ourselves as good before the Lord, but rather putting faith in a God who was going to do that. And he's saying, if that's how it started, if it started good, then the root can continue. Even if we saw Israel in many different ways, not live that way, but rather it can continue now, even today, that it might be producing rightly, that it has always been through faith in our God. And when we get to 17 through 23, we see these three patterns again, right? The, the natural branches broken off, wild shoots grafted in, natural branches back in. And one of Paul's main reminders to, to Gentiles of his day, to me and you today, is to be humble. And he takes this image of a wild olive tree that probably means nothing to any of you right? It doesn't mean anything to us in our culture. Yet in their culture, the idea of a wild olive tree would have been this image of unruly and completely unfruitful. It was no good to find a wild olive tree. You needed a cultivated one that would have been cared for over time and brought to bring much fruit. And here's the wild thing. I don't know a whole lot about this, but arborists and, 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 and people who do this sort of thing would say you never graft in a wild into a cultivated In fact, it won't do what you think it should do. In fact, it doesn't make the olive branch now all of a sudden bring more fruit. In fact, it tends to corrupt the the, the actual branch down to the roots and kill that tree. And yet Paul wants us to realize in God's upside down logic, that's exactly what he did with us. He looked at a people who did not bring fruit towards him, Gentiles who were not moving towards God, preserving his righteousness in any way, shape or form. And he took us and he grafted us in and it did exactly the opposite of what you would think. It produced fruit in us. It brought us to a place where in God's grace, we might, might bear fruit to his glory because of the roots of faith that were already established. 
that we work through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And he says, all that is to make Israel jealous, to see what God is doing with a people that were not his people. You know, one of the dangers that, that Paul is trying to head off is this idea that the church, which is oftentimes in our day and age, and since Jesus' resurrection, seen as primarily Gentile, has replaced Israel. That in the Old Testament, God worked through Israel, but now in the New Testament, God works through Gentiles. You know, some would want to view that Israel was God's plan in the Old Testament, but Gentiles are his plan now. And while it may be true that God works through different peoples, through different time, there's always been a plan to have one people of God, Jews and Gentiles together as God's people bound through faith in Jesus Christ. That's always been the plan. God primarily moved through Israel originally. He's primarily moving through Gentiles now, but he will again move through ethnic Israel in a major way is what Paul is saying. So stay humble. Know our place in this storyline and that it's never been dependent on us. That God brought us into this story by his own grace and mercy. You know, what Paul has been using an analogy for through the bush, he's now going to say very plainly. He says this in Romans eleven twenty five, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers and sisters. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards to the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. But as regards to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. This mystery, this mystery that Paul wants us to, to see, it can't be the hardening of Israel. He's already talked about that a lot. The mystery can't be what what Paul sees as the fullness of Gentiles, the full number of Gentiles coming in. He's talked about that a lot too. The mystery is that God's working through this process, a process that started with Israel, moved to the Gentiles, and will move again back to ethnic Israel. You know, Paul says that right now, Israel is an enemy for the sake of the gospel. They, like even many other religions, are trying to draw people away back to a works-based foundation, and they're doing it still under the name of Yahweh, which is very deceptive and dangerous. But he proclaims that God is going to use them and bring them to true saving faith in the future, much like Gentiles have come to faith in our era. This may not be something that you've thought a lot about, especially depending on your church background. And depending on your church background, this might be something you've thought about a lot. There really doesn't seem to be two middle grounds in the Christian church. You talk about this a lot or you almost never talk about it. You know, very often our Protestant church has been very good to teach about the continuity of God's promises and and his prophecies. In fact, I would agree that most of the prophecies and most of the promises are fulfilled through the one people of God, Jews and Gentiles, that we see it being fulfilled today and we'll see it fulfilled in the future in the new heavens and earth. However, there are prophecies that don't make sense if you don't have a category like Paul for God moving through future ethnic Israel in a very distinct way. I mean, for instance, Zechariah 12.10 says this, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, 
so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Paul's been saying, I haven't seen my people do this. They haven't acted this way. Or even Isaiah 66, 8 says, who has heard of such a thing? Who has seen such things? <clears throat> shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. It's this idea that in an instant, Israel, Zion, the Jewish people would both be pregnant with faith and give birth to faith like that. That the children of God would come forth out of Israel instantly. And Paul's like, I'm not seeing that happen either. Or even Jesus himself who says this to Jerusalem. He says, for I tell you, Jerusalem, you, you will not see me again until you, Jerusalem, say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's very hard to make sense of those prophecies without this process that Paul is laying out. Perhaps you've felt a little bit like Peter, especially through this section of Romans. Peter who says, there are some things in them, Paul's letters, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Perhaps you felt that way a lot <laughs> through Romans 9 through 11. And there's many difficult things, but we want to be careful not to twist them, not to miss the glories and the beauty of what Paul is saying and to hold them rightly. And we've talked much throughout chapters 9 and 10 about election and our responsibility. We talked about it today. It's clearly one of Paul's main joys and main desires in this detour that we would take a glance at, that we'd begin to grasp onto and understand. Yet I think chapter 11 also points to two vitally important applications for me and you this morning. And both of these spring out of cultural waves that have been building for a long time within Christianity. And they're areas that I think we want to be wary of as Christians. I mean, first, from the 1940s on, our, our world in general has had a care for ethnic Israel. And that's a good thing. Seeing a people group almost slaughtered in mass should do that. It's a good thing. Yet, in our post-postmodern culture, where everyone's ways are right, we shouldn't question everyone, they could kind of do what they want. One of the ways that has expressed itself most clearly in the Christian church is in regard to Israel. We, we, we choose not to love our brothers and sisters in one of two ways. We, we do exactly what Paul says, which is we look down on them, that we deride them, we don't hold them properly in esteem as the root, those from whom all these wonderful things started and this pattern of faith alone rising up. It's what led to many of the problems of the early 20th century. And pray to God, may it never be so again. Yet we also hate, don't love our brothers and sisters when we act like there's a different plan for them. When we don't go and offer them the beauty of the glory of Jesus Christ as though there's some other way through works that God's going to make them come to salvation. Paul has told us again and again, that is no plan. Paul lived through a season of persecution Rome was not kind to Jews nor Gentiles in his lifetime, and he saw it only getting worse. And he never failed to proclaim to his Jewish brethren salvation through Jesus Christ alone. We should never want to hesitate to do that, to love them and care for them. And although this may not be the main issue you have felt in your life, it is a big issue throughout the Christian church, throughout the world, and in many different ways to either look down on our Jewish brothers and sisters or to act as though we should not share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. And I pray that is never true for us, Rev. But even if you haven't thought about that issue as much, 
there is cultural waves that you undoubtedly are feeling today. You should have noticed a rising arrogance within Christianity in our culture. An arrogance that acts as though if we could just have the right politics, the right policies, the right ways of doing things, that we could bring about the end times, the things that we want. Friends, we serve a king. And there is no policy, no politics that can compare to the day when our Lord comes back and every knee will bend and every tongue will confess that he is God. That is our hope. That is what we pray for. And while we take part in the culture that God has given us, what a watching and waiting world should hear continuously from our lips, the loudest and the most clear is exactly where Paul leaves us today. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. A humility from us that says our God is at work and I trust myself to him and so should you. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. That's what a watching world should be hearing from us. Glory to God alone who moves the kings and the nations and the people that he would receive glory and that his people might be saved. That's what we want. That's what we treasure. And this morning as we come to communion, I I would encourage you to to take the elements. If you are here this morning, put in your trust in Jesus Christ to, to take those and hold them. We'll take them together after this song. But I want to encourage you to come to the Lord this morning and ask him, have you not been humble? Have you not been humble in your path in this? That, that, that God wants you to be humble in your dealings towards Israel, towards those that have come before you, honoring whether or not it's just your grandparents, great-grandparents, or all the way back to Abraham, to love the path that God has given us, to trust to him, all the different people, groups, including our Jewish brothers and sisters. But then also, where have you maybe become less than humble in how we think we can move ourselves to save ourselves, to save our culture through the things that we do outside of humility and faith in Christ and to offer that as the only hope anyone else has? Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, it is such a good section that you had Paul take us on. A section fraught with turns we didn't know were there, vistas and and views that that challenge us to, to take in the full of their beauty. Father, thank you that you have shared with us about your sovereignty, your power to move hearts. And Lord God, that you continue to ask us to take responsibility, to walk as full image bearers. Lord God, thank you for for Paul unraveling before us this morning this mystery, this way that you have chosen to move through different people groups, through Israel, through Gentiles, back into Israel. Lord God, that we might stay humble in this process. Lord, you do not choose anyone to be one of your sons or daughters because of their ethnicity, but Lord God, you are working through ethnicities and you are working even today that people from every tribe and nation and tongue might come to faith alone in Jesus Christ that your great name might be magnified. Lord God, would that be what this section does for us? Would it rouse within us a passion for you? And would it bring within us worship and a worship that seeks others, seeks that they might worship you as well? Lord God, keep us humble, please. Help us to trust in you, the good king, in your ways. Would we be willing to walk where you take us, to trust what you're doing while continuing to proclaim to everyone what they need most dearly in their lives is the righteousness that they can only have 
through Jesus Christ. It's in his name I pray. Amen.